We are in Genesis, where we've been for a bit. Page 33 in your Pew Bibles, you want to get it out? We'll be looking at it closely tonight. When we last left Joseph, he had just interpreted all the dreams of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh had realized that something significant and special was going on in this young man. Randy Bursma preached last week, reminded us about the waiting times and how God works through seasons of waiting, that nothing is wasted in the economy of God's kingdom. So we move on. Chapter 41, verse 37. Let's see what happens next. The proposal, that is Joseph's proposal about how to organize things during the years of abundance and the years of famine. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find anyone else like this, one in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Removing his signet ring from his hand, Pharaoh put it on Joseph's hand, and he arrayed him in garments of fine linen, and he put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in the chariot of his second-in-command, and they cried out in front of him, Bow the knee! Thus, Pharaoh set Joseph over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zephanath paneah and he gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. Thus, Joseph gained authority over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plenteous years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food of the seven years when there was plenty in the land of Egypt and stored up food in the cities. He stored up in every city the food from the fields around it. So Joseph stored up grain in such abundance like the sand of the sea that he stopped measuring it. It was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, Joseph had two sons whom Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. The second he named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. The seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. And since the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the world came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine became severe throughout the world. This is the word of the Lord. Now we're going to keep, we're going to go back through this text and take a look at some of the really interesting things that the narrator throws in here to teach us about what God is up to. So look back at the very beginning. 
The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Verse 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find anyone else like this and one whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said, since God has shown you all this, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. Now let's just be clear. Pharaoh is not talking here about Yahweh, God of the Jews. He's using kind of a generic word for God. In Hebrew, it's Elohim. It's kind of godness, divinenessness. It's this kind of like, there's something holy going on with you, and I like it. I want it right here next to me. It's like if you've got a friend, and every time you speak with her, you get drawn deeper into a relationship with Christ. She fires you up. She calls you on things. You think, I want that person in my life more. If you have somebody that every time you hear him speak, you think, wow, I, I, I'm closer to, I just really feel like God speaks to me through this person. You want that person right by you. You make regular meetings to be with that person. Pharaoh, smart man that he is, realizes that when Joseph speaks, God is up to something, and Pharaoh wants that right here, right next to him. Can we find anyone else like this? Since God has shown you this, there is no one so discerning as wise as you, he goes on, you shall be over my whole house, and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Removing his signet ring from his hand, he put it on Joseph's hand. He arrayed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Now, does that have any echoes for you of another Bible story? A ring. Prodigal son, right? Yeah, it's very much this idea that you have come to the place where you are now going to be. You have come home. We are going to care for you well here. We are giving you everything you need for success. We are giving you everything that marks you as one of us. The signet ring was a ring that had the seal of Pharaoh on it. Anytime that Joseph would seal something with that ring, it was as if Pharaoh himself had done it. And the gold chain is actually, like if you've seen Prince of Egypt or if you've seen some images of Egyptians from this era, it's like that big, wide gold thing that goes around them. That's the idea. And remember last time, in our last episode, that before Joseph got into the presence of Pharaoh, they did a little manscaping on him. Do you remember this? They shaved him, right? They shaved him completely, most likely, because Egyptians were completely shaved. So you have to get the image that this Jewish kid is hauled up out of prison, and by the time he gets to the end of the day, he looks more like an Egyptian than most Egyptians. And the fine linen garments that they clothed him in is this very fine linen that uh, people say was almost transparent. And the reason we know so much about Egypt and Egyptian culture is because they were so very good at embalming people that we actually have examples of these things, of signet rings and the big gold necklaces and art on the walls that describes what people are up to and the fine linen garment. Now, Joseph has a bit of a history with garments, right? Garments have gotten him into a bit of trouble before. His father gives him a really nice garment. He likes it. He walks around with it. Look at my nice garment. It's very special. It is technicolor. 
His brothers don't like the garment. The brothers strip the garment off. They mess it up with blood. They show it to his dad. No more garment. Becomes a slave in Egypt. Gets a new little garment. Potiphar's wife strips the garment off him. He runs away. No more garment. He's got a little problem with garments. Finally, we get to this point where, phew, he gets a garment on and this one doesn't get taken off. It's like, way to go, Joe. Way to go. He finally gets clothed in a garment that's going to stay on him. And this is kind of a fluky, goofy, but it points to the fact of where he is. He had been entitled, that had been stripped away. He'd been a slave, even that had been stripped away. Now he's up as a person of authority. And because he knows what it's like to have things stripped away, my hunch is he's going to hold pretty loosely to this idea of authority. He understands how these things may not last. So the narrator is pointing out to us the fact that this man is growing up. Verse 43. Pharaoh had Joseph ride in the chariot of his second in command, and they cried out in front of him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Now we've got this, you can see it in your footnote. Uh, Abrek, apparently an Egyptian word, similar in sound to the Hebrew word, meaning to kneel. And that's what scholars put in when they're like, yeah, we, we don't know what that word means. Abrek, Abrek, they would yell before him. It's not like Abrek, it's like Abrek, Abrek. And when you heard somebody yelling, Abrek, Abrek, it was like, get out of the way. Someone more important than you is coming. And what we know about bending the knee is because this art, the way we learn about all these other cultural things of Egypt, the Egyptian culture, is that there's art on walls in places that shows people actually weighed down below as a chariot of someone more important than them goes by. So a brech, a brech isn't like, oh, let me get out of the way. It's like, that's the idea, all right? It's like you are down. A brech, a brech, down. Got the image? All right. 44. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. That's like saying, I decree. Without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That's pretty, that's pretty thorough. Pretty thorough authority. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath Paneah. And he gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. Thus Joseph gained authority over the land of Egypt. Now, the name that Pharaoh gives Joseph, again, is one of those names where, where scholars are like, well, we think it's kind of like this. The idea of the name is that God speaks and God lives, or God speaks and he lives. But the idea that Pharaoh is trying to say is that God is in this guy. God does something in this person. I've seen it, and I'm naming it. God speaks, he lives. And then Pharaoh does some really good matchmaking. Let's keep this business in the family. The priest of On is a city northwest near Cairo, became later known as Heliopolis. Helio is the Greek word for anyone. Son, I'm so proud of you. And polis is the Greek word for city, right? So Heliopolis, sun city, right? Sun city. And in Heliopolis was the worship cult of the god of Ra, the sun god. 
So the priest of An is the most important person in the most important holy city, and he has a daughter, and Pharaoh goes, oh, you God people need to get together. So, so Joseph, he's got a good God connection, and you priest, priest of the, the sun god, you've got a good God connection. Your daughter, jo- this is a great match, this is good. This is a little like giving Joseph, if, if the Pope had children, it'd be a little like Joseph being married to the daughter of the Pope, right? That's, that's kind of the idea that's going on here. And again, we see that Pharaoh is the one who is saying God is up to something. There is something divine going on here, and I am paying attention. Divine matchmaking. Joseph was 30 years old, 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Who else was 30 years old when he started his ministry? Jesus, yes. Most scholars don't think that there's an obvious connection here, just incidental. It's more likely that they're tracking for Joseph his history. How old was he when he was taken into slavery? 17. 17 taken from 30 is 13 years, right? So he has been in slavery for 13 years. He's been growing up for 13 years. So the narrator does these little markers to say, this was the start, and here we are now, 30. 17, 30. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plenteous years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food of the seven years when there was plenty in the land of Egypt and stored up the food in the cities. He stored up in every city the food from the fields around it. Now, that may seem a little obvious for those of us who are aware of like, things like FedEx and shipping and local agency. But back in the day, if you, were the, if you were the king, if you were in charge of everything, you wanted all the stuff. You wanted all the stuff right here where you could control it and nobody else could get your stuff. Joseph says, yeah, that's, that's bad strategy because we're going to run into a famine and then we've got this distribution problem. So he sets it up so every city that's out there gets the grain from the fields that are around it. Good strategy, good distribution. It shows that he has spent 13 years figuring out management principles. First, he was Potiphar's person, learned how to run all of Potiphar's life. Then he became the guy in jail that the jailer relied on for everything. And remember that this was a jail of the well-to-do. This was like a a white-collar kind of jail, as Paul pointed out a couple weeks ago. This was the jail where all the people went who served all the other people who were in authority. So you spend a bunch of years working and serving and being in jail with all the other people who serve all the other people in authority, you're going to get some good knowledge about the way the kingdom of Egypt gets run. So think about these 13 years of management principles and networking and all the stuff that happens in Joseph's life. Verse 49, so Joseph stored up grain in such abundance like the sand of the sea that he stopped measuring it. It was beyond measure. Sand of the sea, what's that ringing a bell for? Abraham, yes. God promised Abraham, okay, so Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Joseph's down here, 
promised his great-grandfather that his descendants would be like the sand of the sea, like the stars in the heaven. There are going to be so many people aren't going to be able to count them. And people are going, yeah, when's that going to happen? Like that whole Isaac Ishmael thing, that was kind of a bust. And then you got Jacob and Esau, and they're all crabby at each other. And then you got these 12 sons, and they throw the other kid in the pit, and they're all, ah. And it looks like this, this promise is one of those things that God kind of dangles out there, and it just never happens. And so the narrator very concretely wants to say to you, God is still up to something. God is still keeping his promises. So much it was like the sand of the sea. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, get it? It was beyond measure. Just wait. Before the years of famine came, Joseph had two sons, whom Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph made the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. The second he named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. We're going to come back to that. Go down to 40, 53. The seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come just as Joseph had said. You see how the narrator saying, see, See, he knew what he was talking about. He was right on the money. There was famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, let me take care of it. No. Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So he's had seven years to watch Joseph at work, and he's like, yeah, I'm out of this one. That's the guy, the God guy. Talk to him. And since the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And then this little nod to what will happen next. Moreover, all the world came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine became severe throughout the whole world. All right, let's go back to 50. Before the years of famine came, Joseph had two sons, whom Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The second he named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh and Ephraim. This is a bit of a, a pit stop moment for Joseph. Those of you who like to hike know that there are times when you'll be on a trail and you'll be so focused on not tripping over the next rock and stepping over the next route that you kind of forget that you're on something much larger. And every now and then you, you do this, you're just truck and truck and truck and truck and truck and this is what I do, truck, truck, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm kind of thirsty. And then you stop and you kind of go, oh, Wow, look at that, look at, wow. And you take these pit stop moments on the trail where you just, you just drink it all in and you can say, wow, look how far I've come. I mean, you can see the little switch back up the trail. Yep, yep, that's where we took the last break. Wow, we've come a long way since the last break. Then you kind of go, whew, look at that. Okay, that's, that's, we could, we'll do that. That's next. And every time you take the stop, 
you get a different view. And Joseph here is finally able to take a stop. And what he names his two sons points to what God has done in his life and to what God is yet to do. So he names this first son Manasseh, Manesha in Hebrew, which means forget. I've forgotten my father's house. And it's really not. I mean, he really hasn't forgotten his father's house, right? Because otherwise he wouldn't name his son that. He'd name him like Bob or something, right? So, so it's, it's very much this idea that the past is the past. And God has set him free of the things that have happened in the past. God has set him free and brought healing and in some ways allowed him to forget, to move on, to cut ties, cut the painful ties, cut the regret. In fact, one Hebrew scholar suggests that the name actually has to do with canceling a debt, that God has canceled debt, that he's paid off the debt, that it's all done, that he has some closure and some freedom from his past. Manasseh. Wow. Look what God has done. And then he names his second son Ephraim, which means fruitful, like super fruitful, like fruity, fruity, fruitfulness. That's what Ephraim is all about. And there are people who are like, wait a minute, he had like two kids. How's that fruitful? His dad had 12. Like, what is he talking about, fruitfulness? But Ephraim turns out to go on and become the largest of the 12 tribes. Ephraim also goes on to take the land in Israel when hundreds of years down the line, when they all get, make it back to Israel, he gets the most fruitful land. So Ephraim isn't just to give thanks for the fact that God has given him these two healthy sons, but it's also a name that looks ahead to what God is yet to do, which is to make them as many as the sand of the sea, the stars in the sky. Too many to count. Ephraim. Manasseh. Ephraim. Now I find that I've got moments in life when I'm just trodden on the trail. And the trail seems really steep or really hard or really mucky. You ever hiked a mucky trail? And it's just like every step is an effort. And you just think, my boots are just coated and my pants. And, oh, and there's nowhere to sit down because it's muddy and you just got to keep going. Or you do these trails where it's like, you know, you get above tree line and you're losing the oxygen. And it's like, okay, let's go. Okay, that's good. That's, that's good. <sighs> And you go like three steps and say, like, is the view good enough from, does anybody else think we're good? Because, uh, and, and you're in the thick of the trail and you're just slogging it up and you just can't even think like, man, God, I, jeepers, I don't even know what, can't even see the summit from up here. I just don't, is it like there? Because we've done that before. I came over a crest and no, no, that wasn't the summit. It's like, nah, I don't know. And I don't even know where you are. 
Then you've got times on the trail when there's like a fork. And you kind of look down, are there footprints on that trail? Are there bobcat prints on that trail? (laughs) And you take a particular trail and you go down because you're pretty sure that's the way God wanted you to go and you find that this trail is even worse and it's dark and it's smelly and there's like moss over everything and you keep slipping all the time and you're like, I don't like this trail! I thought you wanted me to go down this trail and I don't like this trail at all! This trail stinks. And you find in those moments when you're living right in the thick of it all that it's really hard to think that God has anything good at the end of the trail. Because hiking on the trail has been pretty miserable. Joseph spent a lot of time hiking on miserable trails where his present was just miserable. Think about it. You're in a prison. They don't have good running water. They don't have good toilet facilities. You may be in charge of the prison, but that's what, that's liquid management. That's what being in charge of a prison is about. Bringing it in and taking it out. Bringing it in and taking it out. That's hard work. That trail stinks. And so what we find is that in the present, God gives us these little reminders And he gives us people like a pharaoh who says, I think God's up to something here. When we come to the table in a little bit, one of the things that we're going to do is say the creed together. And one of the first lines of the creed is, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And the people who wrote the catechism spent a little bit of time saying, what do we really mean when we say that? And this is what they said. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ his Son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He's able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Now, did you notice a little line there that seemed problematic? He will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. Well, I read that and my cynical, bitter nature says, well, don't send me adversity. It will be easier for me and it will be easier for you because then I get to walk the nice trail that has the nice gradual incline with the pretty views and the occasional rest stops and maybe a park ranger along the way to tell me that I'm going the right way. But you send me on these awful trails And then you have to, like, constantly work to get me back. Recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. Right? (laughs) So why send me adversity at all if it just means that you've got more work to do? A few years ago, Ed Dobson, who is a local pastor, he was for a long time the pastor at Calvary, Nandanam, up the belt line. A few years ago, he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And they had an interview with him in the press. And he talked 
about the difference in his life since the diagnosis, how he'd had to relinquish certain things about his future and uh, understand that his body wasn't going to be functioning the way that he wanted it to work. And he talked about what had happened in him as a result of this, that he'd been able to become a more patient person, uh, more reliant on God, um, all this good kind of stuff. And then he said, but if given the choice, and God said to me, hey, you can either stay the person that you were and not have this disease, or you can become this more deeper person, and you and I are going to have some really deep wrestling out moments together where we're going to really figure each other out in some fresh and amazing ways. Ed said, you know what? I would have chosen this. And I think, me too. Me too. If God said to me, hey, Mary, you can either stay the narcissistic, shallow, selfish, control freak who's always late. You could stay that person. Or you and I are going to go through some really hard times together and we're going to wrestle some things out and I'm going to really tick you off at times and you're going to want to just like move on. But you're going to become less selfish and less narcissistic and you're going to learn to give up some control and actually be on time because it's not about you, it's about other people. You're going to kind of grow in those significant ways. I would have said, I'd rather stay over here because I know what the trail is like to get from there to there and I don't want to hike. And that's why Ed Dobson says God doesn't give us the choice. doesn't give you the choice because God is all about wanting the best for us. Wanting the best for us. He doesn't want us to live small, narcissistic, shallow, control freak kind of lives. He didn't want Joseph to grow up being the bratty little brother for his whole life. He didn't want the people of Israel to be trapped and cut off when a famine came into the land. He didn't want his promises to Abraham to be unfulfilled. God, as Pharaoh knew, was up to something. And God is up to something in us. And when we gather around the table tonight, we do so and we take a pit stop, we take a break, and we look back at what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and we look ahead to what God will do for us someday. We look back and we remember that God sent his son, as it says in Philippians, that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be held onto, but instead he released it. And taking on human form, he was found in nature as a slave. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Abrak, abrak, says the Holy Spirit. Get yourself out of the way because God is up to something. And when we gather around this feast and we share together in the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus Christ, we look back to what God has done and we look ahead to the celebration, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
And because we can look back and because we can look ahead with great confidence and great hope, we can thrive in our present. God gives us abundance in our present. There's this wonderful prayer from Taze that's been running through my head for Lent. Lord, you bury our past in the heart of Christ and you're going to take care of our future. You bury our past in the heart of Christ and you're going to take care of our future. A brack, a brack, make way because God is on the move. Will you pray with me? Our God, we give you praise and thanks for never abandoning us to hike trails all alone, for not leaving us without companions on the hike, and most of all, for the gift of Jesus Christ who has been there before, who has gone down these trails and knows them well so that we don't go anywhere where it's a surprise for you. And we thank you that you want the best for us. And we confess that sometimes we lament and we get mad and we don't think you're being fair. And we praise you that you love us anyway and that you're willing to just let us pound on your chest for a while until we remember how much you love us until we remember again that you bury our past in the heart of Christ and you're going to take care of our future. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.